Now, we heard no voices from above on that. I was, I was real surprised at that. Uh, this will be on Tuesday and Thursday here at the church from 9.30 until noon for three to five-year-olds. And it's a morning uh, full of play. And um, you register here at the church. Uh, you can call the church office. You can see Andrea. But you can also pick up this form that's out in the foyer. It'll be out there here this morning. And it will give you all the information. Now, here's the catch. It's for the first five individuals that get signed up. Now, I'm not talking about you old people. You can't do it. But uh, because of the, just kind of getting this thing started and making sure that we're uh, able to handle everything well, it's going to be a great opportunity for uh, some of the moms and, and uh, parents and so on uh, to have a special event on Tuesdays and Thursdays in May from 9.30 till noon. And if you have any questions more about that, you see Andrea. All right, I can see Andrea. She's right back there. So make sure that you touch base with her if you're interested in this. This is something that the elders thought would be fun to have for the kids. And we're going to try it out in May and see how things go. And maybe be helpful to some moms as well to have that time. Uh, kind of a little break maybe as well. Okay, you all got that? I didn't see anybody taking notes, Andrea. I hope that they got that. All right, well, we are continuing our series here today, and uh, I'll tell you what, I, I, I have a bit of a confession to make. I, I've discovered that in this series, I'm not doing a lot of preaching. I'm doing teaching. Now, they go together, you know, they kind of go together, but I think we have to go through this teaching part to get to the very last message in this series, which is coming up here, and then... That will definitely be a preaching message, So, because we're going to be talking about what do we do now that we know all these things we've been talking about in this series on why do we believe, and why is it important that we know how to defend and articulate our beliefs. One summer while on vacation, a pastor got into a conversation with a couple of ladies. They were in Florida, and one was in Florida, one was in California, but uh, he was asked what he did for a living. And he told them he was pastor of a church. And the woman from Florida said, well, I hope when you preach and teach that you give people the truth, you know, the real story. And he said, well, exactly what do you mean? And she said, you know, all that stuff about Jesus having died on a cross, resurrected on the third day, and all those miracles. I mean, he never died like that. In fact, he lived a long, full life, got married, and had kids. And the pastor said oh really and and she kind of caught the tone in his voice and, and she said don't you believe that he replied well I'm sure that, that there are some people that do but uh, I, I'm not among them and she said well you know, you mean you believe all that stuff in the Bible and he said well I don't know what you mean by all that stuff but yes I believe what the Bible teaches and she said you mean like the virgin birth and, and he said yes and she just stopped right there. And he could tell from the look on her face what she was thinking. And here was an apparently, you know, somewhat articulate and intelligent individual who believes that the Bible is the real deal, that it is true. And in her mind, there was something terribly wrong with that picture. Now, maybe you have your own questions about Scripture 
or I'm almost positive most of us know somebody that does, that they don't accept the scriptures as anything that's fallible, infallible rather, and, and as, as a guide for life in any way, form, or fashion. But a lot of people, I think, when they come to the scriptures, they think that they have to either check their brains at the door, you know, or reject it intellectually. But they don't really think, I don't think that's true. And I don't think many people here this morning do as well. It's not really fair. Can a reasonably smart person look at the evidence, as we've been looking in this series, and actually conclude that the Bible is not only credible, but true? That's what we're going to find out today. We're in our series on why, why believe, and so far we've looked at why do we believe in God, why do we believe in Jesus, and the key verse for all of these is 1 Peter 3.15. Again, I want to keep bringing this back because this is, this is the foundation that our, our defense of Christianity rests on in a sense as far as explaining it to others. And it is, in your hearts, set apart Jesus as Lord. And then, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And today I want us to consider why I believe the Bible. Now this is going to take two weeks to do this. And so you'll kind of just have to, to wait for the other half. But I want us to get started here with one of the most common questions that people bring up about Scripture. And it has to do with all these translations. How, how can I believe the Bible, they think, when there's so many different translations? How does anybody know what it really says? And while that may be an understandable question... It's actually not as big a deal as you might think, and here's why. The Bible was written in just two languages. You have Hebrew, that was for the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, which was written in what was called Koine Greek. Now, it was different from classical Greek. It's, it's, a, it's a special type of Greek language. So that means that all of the Bibles that we have today are translations from those two original languages. In spite of what some people may think, there is not a Kentucky version of Scripture. I've had people ask me several times you know, about that question. That's not true. Just those two. And every translation is the product of a team of scholars who know how to read and understand Hebrew and Greek. But that, that's the way it is for anything that you and I read. If we're going to read it in English, if we're going to do it, and it wasn't originally written in English, then somebody has to translate that for us. Whatever language it originally comes in, you and I obviously need a translation if it's not English. But when it comes to the Bible, people ask, well, why then are there just so many translations? And that's easy. It's not because we don't know what the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts say. It's not that we don't know that. In fact, we have so many of these it's really amazing. Modern languages are kind of like a moving target because of the way we talk and the way we use their words and the way things they keep changing in English, if you please. I mean, think about it. There was a time when being gay meant you were a really happy person. You know, wicked used to be bad, but yet... You can hear people talk about, well, that was just wickedly good. 
I don't personally understand that, but, but you know what I'm talking about. I know you know this. You know, spam used to be an unidentifiable meat product. <laughs> They're still looking into what exactly is in it. But now spam is junk email on your computer. Cool used to mean, you know, it's cold. Coke was a drink, not a drug. And if you saw somebody and you said, my, they are hot, it meant they had a temperature. Now, isn't that interesting? Words that we understand. I mean, this is why dictionaries are always being updated, many of them every year. So back in the 1600s when Jerry Cravens was just a young lad, <laughs> kind of loses some if he's not here, doesn't it? There's always, there's always second service. We're getting. He was playing golf last Sunday. I just want you to know that, by the way. It was maybe the Sunday before that. Good elder. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to regret that one, I think. <laughs> but it's too late to get it back. But anyway, dictionaries were updated all the time in the past. Well, when it comes to the Bible, when the Bible was translated, the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts were translated into the language of that day. Now, there was a version of of the Bible that was translated and commissioned by a king. His name was James. And he employed what was called at that time in history King James English. And so as a result... You know, when it was translated, there were lots of things in the King James Version of the Bible. Things like these and thou's. A lot of those made it into the translation because that's the way they talked. Other words we don't use today or even make sense to us today. But there was nothing magical or holy about the King James Version. We don't talk in King James English today. And this is why there's been so many translations since then as well. And there will always be more in the future, which leads to the next question people have about Scripture. How do we know, then, that the Bible's reliable when it's so old and it's been copied so many times? That's a good question. When we talk about the writings of Paul or the writings of Moses or Peter or Jeremiah, do we really have what they wrote? Can we know that the authors of the Bible really wrote Even after all this time, we can find that out. Now, actually, the good news is, is this can be easily investigated because the integrity of any ancient writing is determined by the number of documented manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we have to examine and compare. For example, turn my page. We have nine or ten really good copies of something called Caesar's Gallic Wars. Now, this is a period of history, and we have nine or ten really good manuscripts. The oldest is a copy that dates about 900 years after that particular Caesar's time. There's also somewhere around ten existing manuscripts of Plato, the philosopher, that are still available, you can see them and and, and study them. The oldest of these manuscripts is a copy 
about 1,400 years after Plato's original writings. Now, that's, there's still quite a bit of distance there, isn't it? So here's how the Bible compares. Now, listen to this. If you're going to, you and I want to take the Bible seriously, it's better to have, we should have at least eight to ten really documented manuscripts at least. And they should be within, you know, 500 to 1,000 years perhaps uh, from the originals. You see what I mean? The original document's here, but now here we live now, so it's been copied and copied and copied all this time. So how does the Bible do? All right. Well, there aren't eight to ten really good manuscripts. We have over 5,000 written manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts in the original Greek language in support of the New Testament alone. This helps us ensure the accuracy of its right. Many of the earliest copies were separated from the originals not by 900, not by 1,400 years, but by only 50 years. And there are some, there's one, a Magdalene papyrus, I'm going to show you the picture in just a second. This manuscript is thought to have been put together within 25 years of the events that took place. Here's a picture of one of those fragments. It's from the New Testament book of Matthew. And by the way, if you travel to Israel, you can actually see pages from the New Testament in Greek written well over 1,600 years ago. The Old Testament is equally supported by such findings as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's an image of them as well. And these manuscripts date a thousand years older than any previously known Hebrew manuscripts and represent every Old Testament book in the Bible except Esther, which for some reason we don't have a copy of that. And when they first discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls, they were in a cave just along the the uh, upper shoreline is a mountain, little mountainous areas there, and uh, they found them in a cave, and the cave had really good, I guess, temperature or whatever. This is a really cli- uh, temperate climate there. Anyway, they were in tremendous good shape, and, uh, you know, people began to say when they started looking at this, I mean, there were a few skeptics. Okay, well, once we have these, this will tell us just how far the Bible is off, you know, and so they began to study. And they didn't find that the Bible was off. In fact, they found that instead of revealing errors, it revealed an absolutely incredible continuity. In fact, the integrity of the Bible was so affirmed through the Dead Sea Scrolls that many of the primary archaeologists became Christians because they believed that it could not be done unless God had overseen this process of protecting and preserving the text for generations to come. They could not believe that a manuscript could be copied and recopied so many times and not deviate from the original. You know, you know how that is. If we started a story or a whisper through the room here, and again, depending on where you started, but if you started that and you asked that to, you know, you've ever seen that little story? They tell you a story about somebody and you're supposed to keep telling it, and by the time it gets to the end of just five or six, seven, eight people, totally different story than the way it started. And, and it's kind of a little game people like to play that. But, but this, is, this is much more significant than that because they concluded there had to be a God because there was no other explanation for the fact, for the accuracy over all this time. So scholarship, where do they land on the integrity of the text? Hands down, the Bible is the most documented ancient manuscripts, or the most right, written of all of history in terms of textual 
credibility. But that's not all. The other thing we need to know about it, well, how historically accurate is it? How do we know that what the Bible says really happened? I mean, the text could be preserved with integrity, but that doesn't mean that what happened is true necessarily. I mean, were the writers of the life of Jesus really eyewitnesses? That's a good question. I mean, that's fair. We, we addressed this back on Easter Sunday and learned that the disciples all willingly, all of them, willingly went to their death because of their certainty that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. But how's the Bible stood up under outside examination? Say, for example, through archaeology. This is a picture of a famous archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey. He was at Oxford University for a long time. Regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists to have ever lived. But after a thorough examination of the biblical record, he concluded, listen to what he said, that the writers of the Bible were historians of the very first order that should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. He found what, what he said, what he found in the archaeological evidence alone was so overwhelming. Again, Sir William Ramsey became a, a believer in Jesus Christ based on this. He became a Christian, and he wasn't alone. Here's Dr. William Albright, professor of John Hopkins University, declared that there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the accuracy of the Bible. He noted that even the most recent discoveries continue to produce, quote, material that confirm the scriptures at point after point after point. For example, let me give you one. In the book of Genesis, it makes mention of two famous cities. You'll recognize them, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were right along the shore, actually up in the hills just above the Dead Sea. Yet until recently, you know, there was no archaeological evidence to confirm that Sodom and Gomorrah had actually been destroyed by fire and brimstone from above. But now they have found it. Here's a picture, of some of the, well, at least one of the pictures. Here's an image of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then they've uh, no, all the, the clay, they moved everything, took everything away that wasn't part of the actual foundations of things and so on. It covers a pretty good area. And uh, they've unearthed this place of pagan worship. And in these two cities, there's evidence of a sudden and unexplained destruction about 2,000 years ago, 2000 BC, I should say. Here's another example, King David, mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. But yet until recently, we had no record of such a person that could be found outside of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? And again, the skeptics said, well, without some archaeological support, obviously the Bible must be wrong. And this led to some to think that the biblical King David, they kind of put him on the same level as King Arthur, you know, just kind of a mythic uh, figure, until 1993 in 1994. That's not too far back if you think about it. At a northern Israeli site called Tel Dan they found this inscription. It's a pieces of a 3,000 year old basalt stone monument that someone has set up there. And it bore the inscription, the king of the house of the David. This is the first non-biblical reference of David's existence but that's not all. Some of us have seen some things that are even more tangible than this. Some of us in the church have been to, the, to Israel a few times. And uh, 
really, really recent finding. I found this to be fascinating. Uh, during a severe drought in the mid-1900s, I'm sorry, 1990s, the Sea of Galilee had dropped in water level to a certain level. The two brothers discovered the remains of an odd structure here. Here's put the image up there. This, this is kind of the skeleton remains of a boat. Now, what's significant about this is the size of it. You, you have to be up close to it to see it. But up until this particular find, skeptics used to say there's no way that Jesus and his disciples could have got in a typical uh, Israeli fishing boat used by fishermen in the Sea of Galilee because the boats were just too small. You know, you couldn't put 13 guys in, in a boat because they just weren't, they had no evidence of that until they found this boat. And as the water levels receded, they, they very carefully, they, they actually put foam around it, the whole thing, and floated it up, it was right where they could, and it got it out of the water, and then put it in a museum that's there, which we visited the last time that we were there in Israel. And a big difference in being able to say, look, this, what you thought all this time could not have been done, when the boat, this, they, could, they figured 15 people could be in this particular boat. You know, of course, you're just sealing the skeletal remains of it. Matching the New Testament description, though, perfectly. Now, there are so many more of these kind of things, we could talk about them all day. We found the burial box of a guy named Caiaphas, if you remember him. He's the high priest that Jesus uh, had to go to trial before, his crucifixion. We found inscriptions related to Pontius Pilate, which was the fifth governor of the Roman Judea area, big key player in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. We found inscription of support for the Philistine armies in their empire, uh, so prominently featured in the Old Testament, giving support not only that they existed, but the names of the leaders in the cities that the Bible records, and we discovered they're totally accurate. But here's the real headline. Not only has the Bible's claims been supported through archaeological research, there has never been an archaeological discovery that has ever refuted a biblical claim. And you know, if there had been, boy, they'd be singing about it, those that are against uh, the uh, Christianity and, and God. So it stands up, I mean, textually, it stands up historically. That's a thousand in terms of archaeology. But now, for, now, that's all good. But now, maybe this may be the one big thing that, that may bother you a little bit. It's called contradictions. Does the Bible contradict itself? I mean, don't the four accounts of Jesus in the Bible say different things about what he said and what he did? Well, let's think about that. All the supposed contradictions people talk about are simply just different details that one account might add and others might leave out. But that's not a contradiction. If these differing details contradict each other, well, you know, some of them do, maybe some of them don't. But you go back to philosophy 101, and what it says is there's a law of non-contradiction. You can't say it's raining and it's not raining in exactly the same place and point in time. That, that violates the law of non-contradiction. You can't say it's hot and it's cold and have both be true at exactly the same time. That would be a contradiction. So biblical contradictions would be like Mark's account of Jesus uh, saying that Jesus died, and then Luke's account saying that Jesus didn't die. Now that would be 
problematic. But if you just have Mark saying some things about Jesus at the time of the crucifixion, and, and, and the other writer may they leave some things out, John's encounter never contradicted him. It's never mentioned it at all. John just added another detail, and so on and so forth. But neither does it conclude, none of these include that there's a problem. And I want you to watch this video clip. It's short, but it's important to see and hear this. One of the issues people often raise is the question of apparent contradictions between the Synoptic Gospels, where there's a parallel story. For example, uh, Matthew tells the story of two blind men being healed, whereas in Mark's account, there's only one blind man. How can we get this contradiction? The vast majority of these apparent contradictions, however, are quite easily resolved. Uh, Mark describes only one of the two uh, blind men, the one who is most prominent, obviously, or perhaps even the one who became a disciple of Jesus and became prominent in the later church. So most of these apparent contradictions are, are quite easily resolved. Had every single account given us exactly the same detail, we might have accused them of some form of collusion of having gotten together and carefully planned out how they were always going to tell the story with the exact number of details, but then one doesn't have independent testimony at all. It's natural when you have multiple eyewitnesses to the same event, you're gonna get different perspectives. And that's okay, you want that. What you're looking for is a core to the testimony that's the same, that's consistent, even though there may be some variation in the incidental details. If you're in a court of law and you have multiple witnesses come in and testify to the exact same thing, the first objection that's brought up is to say collusion. They got together, they orchestrated their testimony and their credibility is shot. So, when it comes to whether you can believe the Bible, it stands up in terms of the translations and the text, history, archaeology, the integrity and composition. But there's still one more big area, what it actually says. If we're going to accept that the Bible has integrity as a document, is there truth in what you read there? And what about its controversial stance on morality when our own understanding of what is moral and not has changed so much. 